everybody. Hi, everyone. <laughs> that you lagged on that one. I did. I wasn't expecting <laughs> you to sound so like pleasant. But did you see how I even took the wheel on that and started first? I usually don't do that. I know you're usually very hesitant. <laughs> uh, well, being sick makes you do crazy things, I guess. Yeah. Cat oh, sick man. again, you guys. Again. I mean, we have to. Here's the thing. I feel like I'm a relatively healthy person. So I'm not sure why I'm always getting sick. It's only recently, like I know. And you know what? It was um it was quarantine. Uh we kind of lost some of our immunity to each other because we were safe from everyone else's germs for too long and now yeah. I guess. And I'm around like 150 yahoos all the time, so Oh yeah. I mean, it doesn't help. That. Oh, um, man. Anyway, happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween. A little late because... Yeah, a couple days. What was your face? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> Whole, I didn't know. Honestly, like, I'm like, this is it. She gets murdered while we're recording. <laughs> what oh, was, my God. What happened? Was there a noise? Was it- um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> If you hear any banging or bumping around, my landlord's uh, doing some work. Oh, so. okay. I got a little worried there. <laughs> Rewinding. Happy yeah. Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody. Yeah. And we were planning on this episode being before Halloween, but Meredith cursed us with Darlie and that took three weeks um, instead of two that's who so. I should be mad at is Meredith. I've been mad at you for like three weeks straight, but I'm going to direct my anger towards Meredith. So Meredith, sorry. <laughs> I I still can't live with that three-parter. I was, gosh, that I kept thinking about that case afterwards. Just the it's whole one of those that sticks injustice. With you. Yeah, I don't like it. Anyways. Actually, I'm sorry. There is one thing I have to say. Oh, and then we'll be done. I okay, promise. Okay, okay. It's just, as I was editing part one, uh-huh. I realized that when I was going over the crime scene to begin with, I mentioned a blonde hair that was found in the window screen. Yeah. I realized I never looped back around to oh, that. Oh, to our conversation about it? We never touched back on the blonde oh, hair. Oh, okay. So the blonde hair obviously was originally thought to be Darlie's because she was bleach blonde. Yeah. And remember, Officer Waddell was per- perched outside the house, locking down the crime scene. Yeah, yeah. So that it wouldn't be contaminated. Yeah. And that blonde hair was from one of the police officers. And it was not Darlie's. Really? Yes. That's weird. What were the, What was it doing on the screen, though? Um, one of the police officers, I can't remember her name, but it was a female officer that was assisting with processing the scene. Just we're oh, women. We lose yeah, our hair. We lose our hair. So it she fell. lost one of her hairs. It just happened to end up on the screen when forensics was processing it. They're like, oh, look at this blonde hair. Yeah. And it wasn't until later when they did more analysis on it that they were able to be like, um, this wasn't even Darlie's. Yeah. Yeah. And I, at this point, I can't remember if that happened during the initial trial or if that's not until later when they were doing more comprehensive testing for her appeals. Oh, okay. Huh. But I wanted to mention that and we don't have to talk about it ever again. Good. Bye, (laughs) Meredith. And Darlie. Uh, Poor Darlie. I don't know. Uh, Still mixed feelings. 
but I know it's one of those that the more I think about it, I, I don't think she did it in general. I feel like at the very least she needs a new trial. Oh, at the very least. At the very least. Yeah. I don't know if she did it or not. I lean towards her not having done it. I think that was pretty obvious by the way that I was presenting everything. There is a um, a pro Darley is guilty blog that I included in the show notes of part three that as I was reading through it, they made a lot of good points. And I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, this the the pro innocence people spin it one way the pro guilt people spin it another and you look at everything and it just it makes it even more confusing it's crazy yeah it, the whole thing is just crazy anyway what do Here you have we go. for us for our halloween treat i have four halloween cases for you today i like that yes unfortunately well not unfortunately I think we should tell listeners that our first case is a case that you have covered before, which I failed to realize last minute, but it's a case you have covered before. So if they want, which I think guys, you're going to want a more in-depth version of this case. I'm going to kind of give you like the bare bones of it. No pun intended. Get it? (laughs) Bones. (laughs) Anyways. People are like, shut up. Okay, I will. Um, It's episode, what episode in the archives? Uh, It was episode 26 last year. Episode. And it's, um, the episode is named The Man Who Killed Halloween. Yes. I called this uh, episode, or this case, The Pixie Stick Killer. But either way, you know, there's pixie sticks involved now and someone dies. So, yeah. And I'm actually interested to hear maybe you found something that I didn't. Oh, so. that's right. That's right. Or maybe I fucked things up and you need to correct <laughs> it. Either way, we're going to find out soon. Everybody. We'll talk about it. So let's get <laughs> so started. So here we go. So the pixie stick killer. So 1970s in Deer Park, Texas, uh, Ronald O'Brien, who was an optician at Texas State Optical, was married to his wife, Deneen, and they had two children, Timothy and Elizabeth. He was a deacon at Second Baptist Church. He sang in the choir. He was in charge of the bus program. They were just like, I'm picturing just a cute, perfect little family, right? Two kids, husband, wife, involved in church. Yeah, very nuclear family. Yeah, yeah. In 1974, on Halloween night, Ronald, being the great dad that he was, took his two children and some other neighborhood children with him trick-or-treating. This was in uh, the Pasadena, Texas neighborhood. Uh, Typical trick-or-treating, they went door-to-door. As he was taking the kids door-to-door, one house was taking too long to answer. So the kids decided, okay, this house is taking too long to answer, and they ran ahead to a different home. Uh, Ronald stayed back to wait to see if they would answer. He finally caught up with the kids and he had five pixie sticks with him because he had five kids with him, his two kids and the three other children. So he gave the neighborhood children some of the pixie sticks and then they just kept walking, going to other homes. When they finally got tired of trick-or-treating, Ronald walked the kids back home, walked the neighbor kids to their house, And upon returning home, he 
asks Timothy if he wants one more piece of candy. And Timothy was like, okay, sure. Yeah, I would love another piece of candy. So he's like, okay, so pick a piece of candy. And he's like, actually, here, take this pixie stick. So Timothy takes the pixie stick, downs it right away. And then as soon as he takes and eats the pixie stick, and you obviously know what pixie sticks are. They're, and for listeners that don't know if you're too young or whatever, it's those long, um, they look like paper straws, basically a little thinner, and they're basically filled with sugar, right? Yeah, so the thing is, when, uh, back in the 70s, they were a little heftier. Were they? They were, they were more like big plastic tubes. Oh, okay. With like, and they were like stapled at the top and bottom. Oh, These okay. days we know pixie sticks is the thin little. Sealed, they're like, yeah. They're basically sugar shooters. Uh-huh. Like, back then they were like sugar bombs. Oh, I like, know. This is a thick, probably a little thicker than a boba straw. Yeah. Actually. My brother's not going to remember this, but he paid me a dollar to snort one. <laughs> one Halloween. And I was like, a dollar? Ugh. Sure. So I did. I do not recommend snorting a pixie stick. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bloody nose. Yeah. Even though it's sugar, it doesn't feel too hot. It burns. It burns. Yeah. And then you have a sticky, snotty mess on your hands. (laughs) And it's just, it's not fun. Especially when you need to hide it from your mom. Anywho, (laughs) that's, that's besides the point. Okay. So Timothy gets sick right away. When he's taking it, he complains that it tastes bitter. So Ronald, his dad, gives him some Kool-Aid to wash it down. And then he says, here, just take some Kool-Aid, wash it down, go get ready for bed. As Timothy is getting ready for bed, he starts violently throwing up and convulsing. Ronald is holding his son, trying to help him. And later he uh, says that his son went limp in his arms. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. And, and so terrifying. Oh, completely terrifying. Now, I don't know this, and I don't know if you know, but um, all I know is that after that, Timothy, after that, Timothy then dies on the way to the hospital. I don't know if Ronald called 911 or if anyone called 911 or if they took him, they were taking him to the hospital. Um, Do you remember? It's been a while and I'm not looking at my okay. notes. I'm pretty sure someone called 911. Okay. It may have even been Ronald. Okay. Okay. Like I like we said, listen to episode 26 yeah. for a more in-depth look at this Exactly. One. Anyways, Timothy dies on the way to the hospital and this was less than an hour after consuming the candy. Mm-hmm. So when word spreads around this neighborhood about Timothy's death... All the parents were freaked out, as you should be, right? Because he had a piece of Halloween candy, and now he's dead, right? So parents started freaking out. They immediately turned, most parents turned their candy into the police that night because they were so scared. Now, the autopsy revealed that the pixie stick that Timothy consumed was laced with a fatal dose of potassium cyanide. They knew it was the pixie stick because Ronald told the police, yeah, he had this pixie stick. And as soon as he had the pixie stick, he 
he started getting sick and mm. and then convulsing and then that was that. So since they knew who Ronald and the kids had been trick or treating with, they contacted them. They were able to recover three of the four pixie sticks that were still out there. Now, the parents of the child who had the final pixie stick were very upset when they couldn't find it at first. Like they were asking their kid going through the candy, where's that pixie stick? When they finally found it, they realized that their child never ate it because he couldn't open it because it was closed with a staple on top. Mm-hmm. Upon examination of all the pixie sticks, they realized that they all had been opened and that the top two inches were refilled with cyanide powder and closed with a staple. God, two inches. So, I mean, poor Timothy just literally got a mouth of straight cyanide. Exactly. No candy mixed in. No. And the pathologist later came back when they tested the pixie sticks and determined that there was enough in each one of those pixie sticks to kill two to three full-grown adults in each of the pixie sticks. And these are little kids. So when they questioned Mr. O'Brien, Timothy's dad, about the house that he got it from, he said, "I, uh, I really can't remember. So police backtracked all the homes that they visited. And out of all the homes they visited, there was no home that was giving out pixie sticks. Weird, huh? Oh, yeah, super weird. O'Brien even walked the neighborhood with the police three times, retracing their path that they went that Halloween night. And finally, the third time, he was like, uh, yes, I believe it was this house. The owner of that house was a William P. Hobby, and he had an airtight alibi. He's like, Dude, I wasn't even home. I didn't get home till 11 on Halloween night. And the kids and the neighborhood ca- and the neighborhood kids that had gone with the O'Briens were back way before that. Um, so suspicion grew over O'Brien and his story and these pixie sticks that only he got from this mysterious house that apparently nobody was at. Mm-hmm. So... As suspicion grew, police were looking closer at, um, at Ronald, and they found that O'Brien had over $100,000 in debt. And oh, today, in the, yeah, in the 70s, that was to lot, a lot. Today, that would be the equivalent to $520,000 in debt. That is so much. Which is a lot of money, a big hole to get out of. They also found that he had a horrible job history. In the 10 years prior to Timothy's death, Ronald had had 21 jobs and he had been fired from all of them. (laughs) As a matter of fact, at the time, he was in the process of being fired from Texas State Optical. And they also found out that the family car was about to be repossessed and the house was already foreclosed on. He was also in default on several loans that he had taken out. I don't know how he could get loans. Exactly. Now, coincidentally, Ronald had just taken out a $10,000 life insurance policy on both of his children. And days before Timothy's death, he had taken out a 20, an additional $20,000 on each child. 
And those, so now the policies that he had out was $60,000, which would be the equivalent to about $300,000 today. I mean, it takes out a pretty good chunk of that debt. But exactly, but not, not enough. enough. Now you're still $220,000 in debt. O'Brien, when they questioned his wife, she had no idea about the policies at all. Um, the day after Timothy's death, Ronald called the insurance company to ask how he could collect that money. Now, granted, too, since the daughter, Elizabeth, didn't have the pixie stick, she was still alive. So he was only looking at getting $30,000 for Timothy, which wasn't even going to make a dent in the $100,000 that he had in debt. No, and that's just, it's shady as hell. Oh my gosh, like, completely. The, literally the day after your son dies a horrible death, you're like, so, um, how do I collect do I get this that money? money? Yeah, that's awful. So finally, they had, a, they had enough evidence for suspicion of murder. So O'Brien was finally arrested on November 5th. Now, police couldn't find out where he got the poison from, but. He was later indicted on one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. And he pled not guilty to all five of those counts. At trial, his wife testified that Timothy didn't choose to eat the pixie stick, that Ronald had insisted mm -hmm. that Timothy pick that one and eat that one. Friends and coworkers also testified that Ronald had an unusual interest in cyanide and spoke often about, I wonder how much it would take to kill a person. Yeah, I remember when I was researching this, he was like, like so, dude. Uh, and it wasn't just that, um, I don't know if you saw this, but he actually went to like wholesalers that yes, sold uh -huh. this stuff. And he was like, so uh, how much would it take yeah. to like, Kill, kill a large animal. Yeah. Police were even able to talk to one of those wholesa wholesalers that he didn't even buy from, ended up, end up buying from, because again, they couldn't figure out in the end who, they, who he bought it from. But the, the guy who was selling that was like, yeah, I only sell this in, you know, in bulk to like certain, certain professions. He's like, but this guy seemed way too interested in it. Like, way too interested because you know and he also only wanted a little bit yeah, like i yeah. was like no dude, i'm not opening a <laughs> yeah. barrel for you. exactly exactly um his brother and sister-in-law also testified that when they were at the funeral for little timothy ronald spoke of the money um that he would be getting from insurance and what he would do with it and one of his things that he wanted to do was take a long vacation I, I'm sorry, the last thing I would want to do when my child dies is take a vacation. You know, funerals take a toll on you. They're very stressful. Yeah, so you need a vacation from that. On June 3rd, 1975, it took jurors only 46 minutes to find him guilty on all counts. And it took them another 71 minutes to sentence him to death by electrocution. After his conviction, obviously his wife divorced him, which I would too. Mm -hmm. And he was imprisoned at the Ellis I unit in Huntsville, Texas. Now, I, I love this next part because apparently other prisoners in his same unit hated him. Hated yeah, him. He killed his own son. Exactly. And they reported that he was 
absolutely friendless there. The inmates even petitioned to hold a celebration on the day of his execution to show how much they hated him. So they petitioned the jail. They're like, they're like, can we have a party? And they're like, we have all these signatures from every single person in this prison. Can we have a party on the day he's electrocuted? Now, his execution date was actually delayed four times. And uh, for appeals, for appeals, for stays of execution, his original date to be executed was August 8th, 1980. Um, but it was finally held on March 31st, 1984. So it took about four years. And by that time, um, death by electrocution was outlawed. So he was electrocuted by lethal injection. Now, a crowd of 300 demonstrators gathered outside of the prison, cheering and yelling trick-or-treat during his his execution. I love how sassy people get. Oh, my gosh. Listen to this, too. There was, obviously, because there's going to be two sides there, there were some anti-death penalty protesters there. And so the other demonstrators were throwing Halloween candy Oh. Which is sad, but still. This just this reminds me of Ted Bundy where people were like tailgating in the parking lot. (laughs) Now, I mean, it's still really sad because a little boy obviously lost his life and by his father, his own father. Yeah. uh, a kind of light at the end of the tunnel in this story is his ex-wife went on to remarry and her new husband actually adopted Elizabeth, the, uh, the daughter. So I, you know, that's somewhat of a happy ending to this story. Um, I can't imagine what would have happened to Elizabeth had, uh, Ronald O'Brien never been caught and had his plan Mm -hmm. been airtight, which by the way, this was his plan was horrible. Like, yeah, he left evidence all oh over my gosh. his house. He didn't clean up. No. Sometimes um, I think about these stories and I'm like, people, like, get it together. It's like they're not even trying. No. And one thing you didn't mention, the um, the other children that he took out trick-or-treating yeah. that night, they were the kids of one of his really close friends. Oh, my gosh. I bet that friend was not happy. Oh, I wouldn't be either. So anyways, that is the case of the Pixie Stick Killer. If you want to, like we mentioned before, listen more about that one, uh, Crystal has an episode, uh, episode 26 that you can go. You actually got some details I didn't get. Oh, really? Um, Like what? uh, I don't think I included anything about the protesters outside. (laughs) um, Yelling trick or treat. There's even one of the pictures. One, I think it's down here. One of the pictures I have is with one of the protesters with the trick or treat sign. (laughs) That's funny. So, anyways, we'll definitely have to post that. Yeah, we'll have to use that one. All right. So my next case is titled "Freeze Shooting." This is actually a really sad one, too. Um, okay. This case happened on October 31st, 1992 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This case happened on October 31st, 1992 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 16-year-old Yoshihiro Hattori was an exchange student from Nagoya, Japan. Nagoya, Japan is actually the fourth largest city in Japan. He was an exchange student here 
and he was on his way to a Halloween party in New Orleans. Um, he wasn't really familiar with the area, so he ended up getting dropped off at the wrong house. I think his host family was giving him a ride, and mm. he had the address. And so when it, when he told his host family the address, he probably like wrote the address down wrong, but the host family took him there. So he didn't know enough about the area to know that it was the wrong house, right? So okay. his host family dropped him off there, and uh, he went up to the house and opened the door because he thought it's a Halloween party, right? And when his friends had invited him to the Halloween party, they were like, just come to this address, come on in, we're having a party, okay. right? He gets there, opens the door, which was unlocked, and the owner of the house, 30-year-old supermarket worker, Rodney oh, no. Piers, was startled to see this 16-year-old kid just open the door to his house. Yeah. So he yelled, freeze, at Yoshihiro, and he misunderstood the command and thought it was like, probably in his mind, I'm, I'm trying to think of his point of view, like he didn't know what freeze meant, probably thought it was like some... You know, it was a party, right? And so, like a greeting of some like a sort, greeting. Maybe? He misunderstood the command, and so he kept approaching. Oh no! Well, Pierre's had a forty-four caliber Magnum oh. on him at the time, and he fired a bullet into his chest, mm -hmm. nearly at point blank range. Now, I don't blame him. Yoshihiro kept going, kept approaching right even yeah. after he said freeze and this random guy just opened your exactly door. you don't know like and if he's still approaching you yeah, and you don't know just, him it was just an unfortunate coincidence right yeah this is like the the worst case scenario for a miscommunication yeah so yoshihiro died before he could even be taken to the hospital pierre's was charged with manslaughter but his defense invoked the Castle Doctrine. Yeah. And what the Castle Doctrine is, is Americans have the right to apply lethal means to protect I their homes. I kind of saw that coming. Yeah. So he was found not guilty by the jury. Now, this is the heart-wrenching part of the story. Okay. So Yoshihiro's parents, they pursued a civil suit, Right. It took four years for them to be awarded $650,000 in damages, and only $100,000 of that was paid to them by Pierre's insurance company, half of which they donated to various U.S. gun control support groups. Mm. His father says, and I quote, and this was from a newspaper article, sometimes I feel like he's still in America. Someday he'll come back home, I say to myself. Oh, so this poor family, their son was an exchange student, you know, all the way in America. Right. Yeah, so when so he died, sad. they had no closure. Yeah. So of course it feels like he's going to come back at any time to them. Right? right. That he's still just gone. So both of his parents became activists for more gun control laws in the U.S. And they ended up collecting 1.7 million signatures on a petition calling for more stringent controls on firearms. And in November of 1993, they submitted that petition to then-President Bill Clinton. Okay. Two years after Yoshihiro's murder in the U.S., 
two other Japanese exchange students that were attending Marymount College in Rancho, Rancho Palos Verdes in California. They were shot and killed in an attempted carjacking. They were doing the carjacking? No, or the, the carjacker shot them. The two uh, exchange students, they actually were uh, young women. Uh, they were killed when somebody attempted to carjack them. Oh, that's so sad. So I completely understand why Yoshihiro's parents want to advocate for stricter oh, gun laws. I know. However, I don't think that resolves the issue in this case. It like, doesn't. Because this guy was acting within his means. Yeah. I mean, he didn't know. I, I feel bad for the guy. And from what I read, the guy felt horrible. Oh, yeah, I imagine. Like, he, he felt horrible, but he was just trying to protect himself. Right. Right? And his home. Yeah. Which I totally get. And also, yeah, I, I get both sides of it, right? I, yeah, I completely get both sides. Um, and neither side is wrong. Both no. sides are right. Yeah. It's just, it's really, it's one of those, like, everybody loses here. Oh, completely. It just now, it sucks. Yeah. Now, weeks after the two young women, the two other exchange students were killed, a Japanese magazine article came out titled, Here's How to, Av which was, I mean, it didn't say this in Japanese, but it was roughly translated to this. Mm -hmm. Here's how to avoid being killed in America. Oh, my God. And the suggestions included form friendships with locals and learn their survival skills, go native in appearance, meaning dress like Americans, and do not resist robbery. Which That's is just heartbreaking. Awful. Like, could you imagine you're going as an exchange student and you're like, okay, I have to, I have to learn people's survival skills. I have to dress like them. And if someone tries to rob me, I'm just going to give them what them. they want. Yeah. Man, that's so sad. I know. Now, at the 20th anniversary of Yoshihiro's death, his parents went to Baton Rouge, Louisiana to stay with their son's host parents that they stayed in contact with even after his death. Oh, like, they and were I mean, those host parents have to feel awful. I know. Because, I mean, you have to sign a contract that you're going to keep these kids safe. And Can all. you imagine? I know. Um Despite the violence against Japanese exchange students during that time that was happening, um, the number of students going to the U.S. to study continued to rise. So about 47,000 by the late 90s were still coming in to be exchange students, but that began to decline in 2010 to 22,000 due to factors that don't have anything to do with gun control laws. So just the amount of foreign exchange students coming from Japan has mm -hmm. like slowly decreased uh, through, through the years. So, so that is the unfortunate story of, uh, and he was only 16. Yeah. That's so sad. Of Yoshihiro. Oh. So that's a really sad okay. one. Okay. I know. I'm sorry. Is the next one more fun? No, it's not. God damn. Okay. <laughs> I should have so, known this is your payback. I mean, it's my, yeah, exactly. And cryptids. You're getting it both out I, right uh, now. <laughs> Don't even bring up cryptids. <laughs> so this is this next case that also happened on October 31st is the Liskey family murders. 
Oh, this, this happened. sounds really familiar. It might, yeah. So this happened in Benton Township, Michigan, on Halloween Day, around 2 p.m. 16-year-old Devin Griffin just got to his mom's house. Um, he was had just been singing in the church choir. The night before that, he actually, so his parents are divorced. And so the night before he was staying at his father's house. Now that morning before he did his church choir thing, he had already stopped by his mom's house, uh, his mom's house just for like a few minutes because he had to pick up a shirt before going to church. But he, he quickly left after that. It was like he ran in and he ran out that morning. And then around 2 PM, he had returned again once church was finally over. Now, around two, when he got home, he was excited to like finally be home for good. So he settled in and his plan was just to play video games for the rest of the afternoon. So he was sitting there playing video games, but then he started to realize like, gosh, the house is really quiet, right? And so he's like, this is weird because he, at his mom's house, he lived with his mom, his stepdad, and his brother, his other brother. Um, And so he's like, why? It's two o'clock. Like, you know, it's like a teenager thing, right? They just come in, they sit down to do what they're going to do. And it's not until like way later that they're like, like, wait a second. Yeah, like... Where is everybody? Yeah. So he starts to look around the house for his re- the rest of his family. And he went into his mom and dad's step room. He went into his mom and stepdad's bedroom. And he, he said, like, when he went in there, he was like, that's weird that they're both still in bed. It's like almost three o'clock now. Oh, geez. So he goes in there and he, and he sees them lying in bed, the comforters over them. And he starts talking to his mom like, mom, it's like three o'clock. What are you doing in bed? And he walks over to her side and he notices her foot out of the comforter and blood. And so he starts to pull the comforter down and the most horrific scene he could ever imagine both his stepdad, William Liskey, and his mom, Susan Liskey, were covered in blood. When he was later interviewed by police, he said for like a split second, he thought this was some kind of Halloween joke, right? Oh, like this had no. to be fake blood and this was some kind of Halloween joke. And so he called out his mom's name and when nothing happened, he quickly realized that this was not a Halloween joke and that they were dead. So he ran yelling from his house and he ended up calling his aunt, who was his mom's sister, Lori Morse. And she arrived right away. She lived like minutes from her sister. So she arrived quickly. So when the aunt gets there, she immediately calls 911 and she can be heard on the 911 call, like going through the family house, right? She's like, my nephew just called me. He said that he came home and he found his stepdad and his mom shot. And as she's saying all this stuff, she's like walking into all the rooms, right? She's like, oh my gosh, they're dead. She finds uh, William Sr. She finds her sister, Susan. Um, She can be heard also talking about BJ Liskey, which is 
the oldest stepbrother, um, who apparently had threatened Susan's life before because she mentions that as she's like walking through the house. I think she's sort of like in a panic almost, like trying to think like how how could this be happening? Like thinking out loud, not really talking to the dispatcher, but yeah. We hear this all the time where people make like weird side comments while they're on the phone with nine one one. Yeah. And she also finds the body of Derek Griffin, who is um, Devin's biological brother, and he is also dead and tw- tw- at 23 years old. So um, when the police get there, they immediately find all three bodies as well. Um, and they're kind of like, you know, securing the scene they discover that William Sr.'s truck is missing. And the only family member here who was unaccounted for is the one that the aunt brought up in the 911 call, which is B.J. Liskey. Now, William B.J. Liskey Jr., he went by B.J., obviously, was 25 years old, and he was Devin's older stepbrother. B.J. was the eldest son of William, and he actually didn't live in their house. He lived in a halfway house in Sandusky, which was near his father's home. Um, He would occasionally come visit his father and his stepfamily on the weekends, but he never stayed there for very long because by all accounts, there was already kind of a rocky relationship between um, B.J. and his family, especially his stepmother. Um, now all in all, the police found three bodies, Susan Liskey, who was 46 at the time, Derek Griffin, who was 23, and then, um, William senior, who was, uh, 50 years old at the scene. Now, hours later, uh, because they were quickly, they quickly suspected BJ was involved. They were able to locate the stolen truck 175 miles away and the truck was found at the family's cabin in the same county just south of Canton. When the authorities get there, they see the dead uh, dad's truck, they knock on the door and who do you think answers the door? It's gotta be BJ. Yeah, none other than BJ. He has blood all over his clothes and he also has a 22 caliber uh, weapon with him and his father's wallet and cell phone. They quickly arrest BJ. BJ does not put up a fight. And he then becomes the prime suspect in the murders. Months later, while he was held in jail, they recorded a call that he had made to his mother. And his mom read to him a recent article about the murders. And she asks him, and I quote, you did it. You did all of this. And to which he replied, yes. So he confesses to his mom during a recorded call. Later, it was discovered that BJ had a history of mental illness and violent behavior. And in 2007, he had been hospitalized with um, schizoaffective disorder and the bipolar type. He also had a long history of arrests and criminal charges, and he had several domestic disputes that had happened at his dad's house. So, this alludes to what the aunt was trying to allude to in the 911 call because a year... So he had also had several domestic disputes that happened at the home a year before the murders. His dad, William Sr., had called the police to report that BJ had punched him in the face. Now, William, the dad, William Sr., was always trying to help his son. That's what everybody said. And 
especially when his son would stop taking his meds. So every time his son would stop taking his meds, William Sr. would do everything in his power to help his son, help him get back on the meds because he knew that he was better when he was on the meds. Mm -hmm. Now, the day before the murders on October 30th, BJ had actually gone hunting with his dad. And then after that, he had a few beers with his friends. Because he had been drinking that night, William Sr., his dad, thought it would be better if BJ spent the night on the couch at the family home. Because remember, his uh, halfway house was far away, right? Yeah, so he's and like, he's doing the parent thing. Like, yeah, oh, just stay here. He's like, just stay here, even though they rarely did that. But he's like, just stay here. So after an investigation, police determined that BJ woke up on Halloween morning, went to his stepbrother Derek's room while he was sleeping and bludgeoned him with both sides of a claw hammer. Oh my God. Then after he was dead, he went to his father's room and shot him five times with a 22 caliber. Now, obviously Susan probably wakes up at this, right? And she is probably just stunned, not knowing what's happening. So he then rapes his stepmother (sighs) before shooting her three times at close range with the same gun. Forensics found his semen on Susan's body shortly after the murders, and BJ was eventually indicted for three counts of aggravated murder. After undergoing psychiatric evaluations, he was found competent to stand trial, and at trial, Devin testified that he had stopped by that morning to change before church. Remember I was telling you that? Oh, and yeah. He, he said he was in and out quickly and didn't notice anyone but BJ, who was outside loading items into William's truck. So his family had already been killed. Oh, no. When he had gone in and changed his shirt. Oh. But he was just in and out quickly. But, you know, that probably saved Saved his his life. life. It did. Because he got there after the attacks were done. Mm -hmm. um, And he was only there for a minute. So BJ didn't even have time to come back in the house. Yeah. BJ asked Devin how long he would be home for. BJ's like, or Devin's like, I'm just going to go change my shirt. And just like you said, police believe that the fact that Devin was singing at church that morning and left early quick most likely saved his life. Ugh. In 2011, BJ pleaded guilty to all three counts as a plea deal to be excluded from the death penalty. And then on September 9th, that same year, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. In March of 2014, BJ was found dead in his cell due to a self-inflicted wound. Now, I'm assuming that's slitting your wrists because they, they obviously don't have access to guns or right. anything in prison. And I don't and they know would if have hanging, been hanged if he had if, hung yeah. himself. So I'm assuming he slit his wrists. I mean, that that's still sad. Yeah. Because obviously he has mental health issues. He has a history of mental yeah. health issues. Most prisons are not equipped to provide the mental health support that the inmates need. So No. And then poor Devin. To walk in and see your mom murdered and your brother murdered and and going through all those emotions because yeah. start with he's like oh you guys you're just kidding yeah and then and like realizing that this is not a joke anymore 
And then to know that he had he had been home minutes either before or after it happened and mm-hmm. he didn't notice anything and to come home and still not notice anything. Yeah. Like, could you imagine the guilt he might feel? Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, I was just sitting and playing video games all day. I didn't even care enough to say hi to my mom and dad. Yeah. So poor Devin. I hope oh, he's doing so well. Sad. I hope he's doing okay. I know. I, I always think about that with these I people, do like the ones left behind. Oh, I know. Especially when they're so, um, this is technically, this is a near miss for him. Yeah. Like, I just, I hope he's doing okay. <laughs> and 16. And then to see that, you know, uh-huh. just to see how awful that, that, and I bet like he hates Halloween now, obviously. Oh, I bet. And you know what? I've thought about that too. How does Halloween feel? To people who have suffered a, a loss, like a horrific, like murder, and then there's these people that All decorate these gory their homes. Movies and yeah, stuff. yeah. Or I saw an article about that woman who decorated her house. Like she has a mannequin on her roof, and there's blood all over, like the sidewalk. The mannequin on the roof is like laying down, and then in front of the front door, it, it's another mannequin with a safe on its head. And blood oh, splatter. And then another person that looks like they were running ahead, but they have a knife in their back and there's blood all over. You know what you just reminded me of that what? I completely forgot to bring up? What? Um, there was an article that came out maybe the end of September um, that it was the first kind of opening weekend of this huge haunted house in... Um, the Midwest somewhere. I can't remember uh-huh. exactly what state. But one of the actors stabbed a boy because he brought his own knife with him. Oh, my goodness. So like one a, of the actors. On accident? Uh, No. Oh. So this actor was playing. You know how they have like knives and, and chainsaws, but they're all yeah. fake. Well, the actor's doing his job. He's trying to freak out this mom with her son. Yeah. And the son was like, I think, 12 or 13. And he did the snotty kid thing. They're like, you you're not scare scary. Me. That's yeah. fake. And so the actor was like, uh, no, it's real. And he kept like <laughs> trying to like jab him in the foot with it. Oh, my gosh. And he actually stabbed him in the foot. That is... <laughs> He was like trying to be playful at first and then he actually stabbed this kid in the foot. And dude, read the room. Like probably don't do that. (laughs) Don't bring a a real exactly. That's what I'm saying. Read the room. Like use the props. That's what they're for. Although, if I were to commit murder and be like a serial killer. A haunted house. A haunted house, and then you just flee. During the panic. Okay, well, now I'm glad that this episode is coming out after Halloween. (laughs) Because um, hopefully a year from now, all the serial killers that listen to our podcast will have forgotten about this. Which I hope there are no serial killers (laughs) listening to our podcast. Watch, like, our five fans are all serial killers. Not Meredith, though. Is that her name? Meredith. (laughs) Not Meredith. She's not a serial no, killer. No, but she's a runner and it may as and well then, be the same thing. <laughs> that's true. 
just having a little fun. <laughs> All right. Uh, so our final Halloween case. Sorry. Still not a good one. Um, a good one as I mean in non-murderish or sad. Actually, this has a happy ending. So you know what? I'm going to say this is a good one. Okay. So these are actually, and I'm going to say the title, you're going to be like, what? Um, The Halloween Rapes. So (laughs) I know I said, but it has a good, has a happy ending. (laughs) Okay. I don't mean to be laughing. Oh my God. I'm sorry. She's (laughs) laughing because of my reaction here. I wish, okay. I wish we could just get like a, just screenshots of your facial reactions to to my story. You know what we should do? We, we should, should do like an actual like live stream sometime for one of these. For our serial killers that are listening. Uh, let's not because I don't want them to be able to identify me. Uh, but we should do screenshots of faces. Okay. The Halloween Rapes of 2009. This happened in Woodbridge, Virginia, and three teenage girls were walking home after a fun Halloween evening. Uh, They had gone to one of the girls' uh, family's homes for a uh, seven-year-old cousin's birthday party. Then uh, they actually took a group of some of the kids at that birthday party trick-or-treating. And then they decided they wanted to do a little trick-or-treating of their own after they saw, you know, all the little cousins get all of this candy. They're like, you know what? Let's go do some trick-or-treating of our own. So they decided they were going to do that. They had hit a couple of homes. They got some candy. But it started to rain. So they're like, you know what? Let's just go home now. So as they were walking, I think all three girls, they were going to spend the night at one of the homes. Uh, They start walking back. And the girls were texting, you know, their friends and talking, as girls do. And they passed by the Woodbridge Shopping Center. And as they were passing by, and it's nighttime and it's raining, they could sense someone following behind them. So they're they're sensing this, and the, the girls kind of go quiet. And then one of the girls feels a gun at her back. Oh, and the man behind them told them, don't move, don't turn around. Do you have any money? And the girls were like, we have zero money. We only have candy. So he's like, do not turn around. You're going to keep walking straight. And he leads them behind the building, like behind the mall, right? So they're kind mm-hmm. of in like an alleyway. So they're walking behind the building and the man made them drop their candy and then he proceeds to lead them down a steep slope behind the building. The whole time telling them, just do what I say. If you turn around, I'm going to shoot you. Just do what I say. So he leads them down that steep slope and it's kind of like a wooded leafy area down the steep slope and he tails them Um, you need to lay down on the ground, all three of you, and I want your faces in the ground. Like, you can't be facing sideways. Lay down on your stomach, face to the ground. He says, don't say anything or I will kill you. So, all three girls lay down on their bellies, face on the ground. 
one of the girls manages to kind of like scoot away um, and he begins to rape two of the girls. Now, the third girl who's kind of like kind of like scooted herself away in the commotion of her other two friends that are being raped, she's kind of able to like bury herself a little in the wet leaves. And she testifies later that she knew her friends were being raped. She didn't see it, but she knew it was happening because of all the sound and, you know, yeah. just she could infer, right, that her friends are being raped. Yeah. So she manages to get her cell phone that she still had with her in the sleeve of her shirt. And she texts, she immediately starts texting her mom and her friends, their location and what is happening. And so as she's texting her mom and her friends, because she doesn't want to call 911, right? Right. Because the dispatcher picking up is going to make noise and he's going to hear it. Yeah, exactly. So the friends and the mom call 911 to give the location, give what's happening. She's still texting friends so that they're keeping an open, you know, communication so that she, they know she's still alive. And at one point, because she was getting so impatient, she decides, because police aren't coming yet, to dial 911, but she puts the phone down, right? Because she knows at this point, mom has called 911 and friends have called 911, but she wants to give them an exact location, right? She's kind of disorientated, so she doesn't really can't give them a clear direction. She just says, we're at the mall, right? Yeah. We're, it, we're behind the mall. We're behind the mall. We're in the woods behind the mall, but so, that's a very big area. So she calls 911 and she kind of like smushes the phone into the dirt. So it muffles any sound coming out. Yeah. And the 911 call is able to like, you know, find a direct like kind of radius location. Right. So, and you know, uh, dispatch at that point, they've already gotten multiple calls. Yes, so, so they know this is serious. Call that the person is not yeah. talking. Yeah, it's it, it, and they could probably hear some of what's going in the background, or at the very least, like the sound of her mashing her phone into the ground is totally. making enough noise. That and from that, I think they can hear the screams too, and you know, yeah. Um, so. The police are dispatched, and as soon as the man who is doing this to them hears the sirens, he runs, okay? So, police had actually been on the hunt for a suspected serial rapist in the nearby county since the 1990s before this incident. Really? Yes. And... They realized after they got to the girls, they interviewed them, they took evidence. They realized that this assault was the same as the 17 rapes that they had been hunting the serial rapist for. This was like the same MO where he was approaching vulnerable strangers. He uses a weapon, he rapes them, and then he's able to escape without the witnesses or victims knowing much about his description. The same DNA was found at several of these 17 rapes, but they were never able to match it in the database. Now, two of the teens were able to give varying descriptions of the assailant. So one of them was one of the teens that was being raped. She had like turned around when he wasn't looking several times. Mm -hmm. And then the girl that was in the bushes or in the leaves that had kind of scooted away and buried herself. She was kind of able to, to 
see glimpses of him, right? Police then immediately released two sketches and pleaded for the public's help in finding the suspect and even offered a reward. Now, there was an anonymous tip that was that matched um, the description and one of the long suspected suspects that they had for these 17 rapes. So they always had had a list of suspects that they were looking at, but they never had the final piece to like kind of pin it on any of them, right? And this suspect happened to live nearby the scene. So he lived near the mall. And so as they were gathering more evidence, they ended up visiting the suspect again. And when they visited him, they were able to collect a cigarette that had been discarded that he had smoked. And once they grabbed that cigarette, they were able to make an exact DNA match. And so the police arrested Aaron Thomas, who was 40 years old, after his arrest, Aaron was the one that brought up the Halloween crimes with detectives. So the arrest, they were just like, you're under arrest for suspicion of, you know, whatever. And he was the one that brought up the Halloween crime with the detectives. He said, and so when the detectives asked him, so why'd you do it? He said he saw the girls. He got the urge like many times before that. So that was his, like, I just see girls and I get the urge. In 2012, he pleaded guilty to three counts of aggravated kidnapping and two counts of aggravated rape of minors, and he was sentenced to life in prison. The statute of limitations had passed on a couple of those um, other rapes, so mm -hmm. they could never get a conviction for some of those. I think there was only four others They were that were they were able to get convictions for and that just piled on to his sentences but had it not been for those girls who were able to have an official description of him um he would have probably committed more rapes and never been caught so yeah. i actually want to do a more in-depth uh case about this guy because there's like uh, this guy just has a history so um, I might do an episode on Aaron Thomas uh, soon, which is the guy from this case. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, 17 rapes, which then included after the girls, 19. So he almost yeah. had raped 20 women before he was caught. Over the course of 12 years. Yes. Which is yeah. insane. That's crazy. It's so. It's really creepy how long these people can go. And I mean, the East Area Rapist is a really good example, too, that it took how many decades for him to be caught? Yeah. 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 I don't know. So, yeah. Anywho. Yeah, um, Halloween's over, but the season <sighs> but of safety is never ending. <laughs> so if we've learned anything from these cases, never eat candy that looks like it's been stapled at the top. What sucks is pixie sticks used to be like well, stapled. Well, okay, but now they're not people. They're not. So never eat candy that has looked like it's been opened. Uh, nothing is ever a prank. Nothing. If it's looks like blood, it probably is. And don't walk at night alone. Well, I guess they weren't alone, but still, I think teenagers no, and I mean, walking in the just dark out on Halloween, especially on Halloween. Fun. Come on, and like. Good kid fun. 
Because yeah. I'll say I used to there's been a few times that I went trick or treating as a an older teenager because I wasn't allowed to as a child because it was the devil's holiday. Um, you laugh like I'm joking, but I'm not. I'm, not. I'm sad. <laughs> I'm sad. <laughs> um, and I, I remember I was 18, 19 years old just going out with my friends and these like moms would be like aren't you a little old for trick-or-treating i was like okay then give me a beer so i can be like all the other 19 year olds what did you dress up as um i was a fairy one year and i think i was a witch the other year just like simple stuff i was thinking about my halloween costumes the other day and i'm like oh so i when i was really little i remember being Wonder Woman. I remember being Minnie Mouse. I remember one year I was a princess. Actually, my uncle had made me my princess costume and it was amazeballs. And then I don't know where I started to go wrong, but then <laughs> one year I was like a German girl. I, I like I wore this dress with this floral wreath. And then one year in high school, I decided to be Jackie Kennedy and I wore this pillbox hat and and this pink dress and I was, I was Jackie Kennedy. And then I don't know. I, I don't know if I ever did Halloween after that, but as I was thinking of these costumes, I was like, fuck, I was either, super creative or super fucking lame like Jackie Kennedy so I will say there were a few years when I was very young before it became like the night of Satan um (laughs) I think I think when I was like three and four years old I was an angel I remember I was an angel two years in a row because my costume still fit and that's just how we rolled in my house yeah um and the next year I was a graduate. Like I had a full like miniature size, like cap and gown um, and like a little diploma. <laughs> a um, graduate. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I want to say that I, I think that was the year I was in kindergarten. Um, and then the year after that, it was um, the devil's night to roam the earth and we weren't allowed to do it anymore. Uh <laughs> I'm sorry. I keep laughing. <laughs> so, oh, man. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed their Halloween. I hope you enjoyed that Halloween quarter. Is that quad? What in the world are you? Are you having a stroke again? <laughs> oh, I hope you enjoyed that Halloween tale of four cases (laughs) i think you're done you're broken can we stop (laughs) i think it's time okay happy halloween everybody but i mean it already happened but i hope it was fun (laughs) yes but we didn't get a chance to say it yet yeah so yeah um we'll see everyone next week and send me those dark chocolate kit kats thanks oh you like kit kats (laughs) dark chocolate Kat and I are so grateful for all of our listeners, and we love hearing from you guys. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Interest Podcast, and let us know your thoughts on this week's case. We want to cover the things that you guys want to hear, 
so please email us your case suggestions at alternativeinterestpodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you so much for listening and sharing us with your friends. Be good to each other, and we'll see you next week.